Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, stories of struggle, hope, and survival in the face of colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode 14 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. My guest this week is Kimberly Bishop. Kimberly's story is yet another story of a young person that was told by their doctor that the symptoms they've had for several years couldn't possibly be colorectal cancer because they were too young. Yet Kimberly was diagnosed with rectal cancer at the age of 34. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Kimberly. She's funny. She has a great outlook on life, truly a truly positive attitude. So join me now for my conversation with Kimberly Bishop. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Good morning, Lee. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate you taking the time to share your story with those I know who are eager to hear it. Uh, you were diagnosed eight years ago at the very young age of 34. So you're another one of my never too young stories that needs to be shared. Tell me about what happened. Yes, indeed. Um, I was. I was 34. Uh, I would say probably in the prime of my life. Um, I had symptoms in retrospect probably for about three years. I would say maybe even as early as age 30. I recall just having a lot of gastric distress and um, didn't really think a lot about them because at the time I was very healthy, very fit, um, tried to eat well within moderation. I still enjoyed, you know, candy or a soda here and there. Um, but my, my diet mainly consisted of fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, an occasional piece of fish or chicken, um, a lot of soy, things that, that could normally, you know, cause gastric distress in a normal person, let alone a semicolon like one of us. Um, so, you know, I'm trucking along. I'm in my early 30s. Um, started seeing a little bit of uh, bleeding. And I remember the first major episode that I had of my rectal bleeding um, was the morning before I started uh, the new job, which I'm actually still at. Um, I'd gotten up. I was on a Sunday morning and just the normal, forgive me for being graphic, got up to go urinate and felt burning and pressure at my rectum. And didn't think much about it. And when I got up to flush, I had a bowl full of bright red blood and clots. And of course, I was really freaked out. And I called my dad and he said, it's probably just hemorrhoids, you know, but make a doctor's appointment when you can. Um, so I didn't really have any any big episodes like that for a while. And I was, you know, getting acclimated to my new job and, and kind of fitting into that role. And I was taking college classes um, intermittently at the time as well. And... Over the next couple of years, I would say the next two to three years, this really, really um, got increasingly worse. Um, a lot of pain, the alternating uh, bowel movements. I, I think back to this now, and I didn't know that the narrow stools were a, a really telltale sign, but I had really narrowed stools, the mucus, all the classic symptoms um, that a colorectal cancer patient would have, um, in addition to more frequent heavy bleeding episodes like this. Um, I had gone to my doctor a few months after that initial episode, and she'd done a digital rectal exam and uh, prescribed me hemorrhoid suppositories and, of course, you know, gave me the whole spiel about take more fiber, um, drink more water. And that the suppositories seemed to uh, maybe somewhat quell 
the bleeding. And, and I don't know if that was because the polyp was so low in my rectum that maybe it masked it. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, but when the bleeding uh, and the symptoms got worse, it was around late uh, 2006, November timeframe. Um, and I visited her again. Um, she said, let's send you to get scoped. Uh, I don't want you to freak out. You're too young. They're not going to find cancer or anything like that. And that was the first time that colorectal cancer, I believe, uh, had ever been mentioned to me. Um, I'm not sure I even knew that such a thing existed. So uh, suddenly this was on my radar and it was just a, a huge shock. Um, first colonoscopy in January of 2007. And as you and I shared, it was really cold that morning, freezing. And I was starving and shivering and, and really didn't want to go. Um, and I'd actually considered not going because I was scared about the procedure. And uh, the night before, I had viewed a world news report um, highlighting how cancer deaths had declined over the last decade. And a, a lot of that was largely attribu attributable to um, screening. And colonoscopy was um, highlighted as one of the main screening tests. Um, people were, were being screened, polyps were being found, and lives were being saved. So that was sort of a foreshadowing for me of, of what was to come. And, and I, at that moment, had no earthly idea how relevant um, that would be for me for the rest of my life. But that initial scope found my uh, polyp, my one and only polyp that I've ever had. I've never had a subsequent polyp on any follow-up scopes. Um, it was 13 centimeters. It was blocking my rectosigmoid juncture. Um, and it was estimated to have been there eight to 10 years. Um, the gastroenterologist was shocked and um, he was very um, clear with me that I needed to get set up with a colorectal surgeon ASAP. Uh, and not to put the surgery off beyond a few weeks. Um, after the colonoscopy, uh, he said that he felt certain that if it wasn't cancer yet, it would be. Uh, about a week later, the pathology came back, and it did indeed show signs of um, some pretty high-grade dysplasia. And it, it was just too large for him to really, really tell. So we didn't even know there was a tumor in there until after my surgery. So that was kind of the initial thing. <laughs> So when you started to hear the words cancer, uh, what went through your mind? I, I, to some degree, was blissfully ignorant because I'm a person who, who likes to educate myself. I like to uh, poke and prod and get all the little different factoids and, um, you know, weed out the good stuff and um, just really try to, to, to be on top of, of all the information. I think it's, it's powerful to have that. Um, but for some reason, I, I think it was perhaps um, partially denial, partially, um, you know, I don't have time for this. It, just, just this attitude of, of sort of um, laxness, I, I guess. That's not even a real word. I know. I just made that up. But um, it, it didn't really, we'll it didn't it. really, <laughs> it didn't really sink in. And I remember that the day the, the um, GI called me back with those pathology results, I was actually at work. It was late afternoon. And I did have a moment of breakdown where I went in my boss's office and told her all this. And she hugged me while I cried. And she said, go home. And of course, stubborn me. And no, I'm fine. I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to be good. <laughs> which was stupid in retrospect because I needed to go home and just, and just deal with it. Um, I, I don't think that 
even in visiting with the colorectal surgeon on those um, initial consults that I had with him where he measured the polyp, went over the surgery with me. Um, he talked about the possibility of needing chemotherapy depending on the pathology report after surgery. Um, he gave me statistics in that 67%, if lymph nodes are involved, um, the five-year survival rate really popped out in my mind. And it was kind of like, wow, you know, that's, that's two-thirds of 100. And what if I'm not that 67% if it goes this way? So, so I had a little bit of an inkling of what could happen. But I think at that, that point, because it wasn't a certainty, um, it, it really didn't didn't click. Uh, it was after my surgery when I got the pathology back and found out there was indeed a tumor, there was lymph node involvement, the reality hit. Um, and that's when it got really scary. <laughs> sure, sure. So what was, after treatment, what was the uh, treatment protocol prescribed for you, Kim? Well, I had the um, the low anterior resection sigmoid colectomy. I was actually in the hospital for five days during race week in Daytona, nonetheless. Um, and it gets quite chaotic there. So the hospital was full and, uh, and very, um, very crazy. Um, came home from the hospital after those five days and met with my oncologist about three weeks later. Um, because they were able to attain really good surgical margins, good clean margins, um, and the, the polyp wasn't so low in the rectum, um, both my surgeon and oncologist concurred that radiation would probably be more detrimental to me than harmful. So we just went with uh, 12 rounds of full fox. And I was actually able to go with all 12 cycles of the oxal platinum. Wow, that's a that's an accomplishment unto itself. <laughs> I know a and, lot of folks and, don't these days. That's true. And you're the first person I've spoken to, Kim, that went through uh, rectal resection and did not have to have radiation. So uh, listening to you share that with me now uh, also surprises me. Right, because I, I believe the statistic is roughly 90% of rectal cancer patients do have the radiation. Um, and I was extremely, extremely fortunate um, to not have any recurrence, to not have to go through the radiation. Um, and it was, in one way, it was a bit unnerving because I wanted as much treatment as I could get. Um, and I, I know that you understand this. You want to make sure that all your bases are covered. But at the same time, I didn't want to have to deal with any more um, later long-term effects than I had to. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. Sure. Um, and this all took place about eight years ago. What is your health status today? I have uh, very, very fortunately been NED since surgery. Um, had, a, had a couple of little freakouts there on my scans um, within the first year of treatment. Had a couple of cysts popped up on my ovaries, and thankfully they turned out to be normal follicular cysts. But, of course, in my mind, I immediately went to METS. Uh, thankfully, that was not the case. Um, and I did have a nodule on my liver, and thankfully that has remained unchanged. So that um, has not been a malignancy. Um, my oncologist actually discharged me in late 2012, and it was about five and a half years past my um, my diagnosis date. Um, I do still uh, follow up with my colorectal surgeon about every six months. I have a sigmoidoscopy, um, but as far as surveillance scans, CEA, 
um, those things I don't do anymore. Um, I am very fortunate to have found a very good primary doctor who knows my oncologist and my surgeon. As a matter of fact, they recommended him. Um, and he is very in tune with um, the fact that chemotherapy can cause these late and long-term effects, as you and I and a lot of other survivors know. Um, and a lot of these things have surfaced for me in, in recent years. And um, I'm grateful that he's not been dismissive of those. Um, and he's willing to, um, you know, stay on top of those and work with me as, as the years progress to kind of manage those things. What's the uh, biggest uh, challenge that you continue to face as a result of your treatment? Oh, boy. Uh, well, Imodium. Um, I think I probably go through a bottle a week. Of that. <laughs> Actually, I would say that um, I've, I've noticed, I think perhaps the full fox has kind of affected some of the motility. And I've had a lot of up and down issues with managing um, the digestive stuff in, in recent years. So that seems to have changed a little. Um, I've developed some scar tissue in there that can be very, very painful. Um, at this point, it's kind of a wait and see if it gets any worse thing. We don't want to open you back up and deal with it unless we have to. Um, the neuropathy, the balance issues, um, little tinges of chemo brain occasionally. Um, just having days where I hurt and don't feel good and the spinal issues and the joint issues. Um, and I, I know I've talked with the other lot of young survivors who have dealt with these same things. And I, I think the biggest frustration with that is that um, you know, a lot of folks will say, oh, well, you're, you know, you're in your 40s, you're just getting old. And they don't really understand because they've not been through it um, that, you know, you go from being young and healthy to having this horrible treatment. I mean, it's wonderful because it keeps you from from having cancer. Um, but the things that it does to your body and how that impacts you and how how quickly that speeds up the aging process and the breakdown of, of everything. So um, that's that's just been the biggest challenge, I think, trying to manage it all. I want to go back, Kim. I, when I speak to people, either through the podcast or through via social media, many people are fortunate to uh, lean on the support of a spouse or a partner and say, that's how I got through because of my wife, because of my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it may be. That wasn't the case for you. Tell me briefly about your situation and more importantly, where did you turn to for support and inspiration to fight on through. Right, right. It, it, it indeed was not my situation. Um, my, my dad actually um, was wonderful. He took me to all of my chemo treatments and my doctor's appointments and came down to check on me and, and drove me places and just made sure that I was okay. And I was very grateful for that. Um, I had a few close friends um, who would come over and sit with me, bring me food, uh, run to the store. Um, they were sort of my rocks. People at work who were very accommodating um, because they, they understood, at least they tried to understand what I was going through. Um, I'm recently divorced um, from a 15-year marriage to a man who um, is an alcoholic and um, is also, I don't know if you would say a marijuana addict. I know there's a lot of uh, you know controversy surrounding that, but he, he also smokes marijuana very heavily. Um, and because of his own issues, his own addictions, I understand that he you know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't capable really of being present. And, um, I, I think because of his own fears about what was happening, he further sort of sunk into those substances to kind of, 
um, to deal with the uncertainty and the scariness. And so I worked um, nearly full time through treatment, um, 32 hours a week. And that was that was hard enough, um, you know, because I had to support myself and um, keep my health insurance going. Um, He typically didn't keep regular jobs. Um, There were a lot of moments during treatment when um, he was, you know, frequently under the influence and um, he would often actually drive me to have my port unhooked while he was under the influence because no one else was available to do it at that time. So that was a little scary for me. Um, And it was a a heart-wrenching decision for me to walk away. But after you know, just really trying to do everything humanly possible. I I think this was the best course for my life because ultimately I can't fix anyone else and I can't be responsible for anyone else. So, um, just a lot of good people were there to surround me, um, and to help me through that situation. And I'm very grateful for that. Kimberly, you think back to your life before cancer became a part of it. My question is what would the Kim before cancer say seeing the Kim after cancer. Wow, girl, you're awesome. (laughs) um, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Not, not, not really, but, but knowing, knowing the person I was before cancer, um, I don't like, I don't really like who she was. Um, and you know, obviously I, I, I wasn't as old and some of the wisdom comes with, um, with age, but, Um, just the life experiences were different at that point. There's been a lot of, um, emotional healing for me, a lot of things that I've dealt with and, and, and purged and, um, a lot of my own attitudes and emotions. And I I think I have a better heart now. I think I tend to be, um, more compassionate and, um, more in tune with what others are going through and having been in that frail week. Um, spot with all that uncertainty, all the the big unknowns out there and facing my own mortality. Um, I I do tend to be more kind, more compassionate, more giving. Um, I I tend to be more like the person I I want to be that I see in others and I strive to emulate others. And um, I I want, I want to emanate beauty from the outs, from the inside out. Uh, I I just want people to see a beautiful spirit when they look at me. And I'm, I'm still working on that because I still have a lot of issues, but um, I, I hope that will ultimately be what transpires. So I want to go back to the never too young topic as it relates to a willingness to get over the embarrassment of what it, what it's the way it's referred to in many other countries outside of the U S they refer to it as bowel cancer. Right. That. Uh, so we're talking about quote unquote bathroom issues and young people particularly find this embarrassing. What's your message to basically say, get over it, it's your life, uh, to, to people uh, that need to hear that message, uh, how important this is? You, you know, that that is exactly it, Lee, for them just to get over it. Because, um, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been mortified. And I think especially young women um, are very, um, very closed about, talking about these issues, even with their doctor. I mean, nobody wants to talk about poop, let alone bloody poop. Um, you know, but I, I find it, I guess I find it odd that, um, you know, people will talk about childbirth and they'll talk about breast cancer and, you know, all this other stuff that, um, is, is just another part of our anatomy. Um, 
you know, bathroom issues are just nor- their normal function. And, you know, when you deal with stuff like we do, it becomes very commonplace and it's not an embarrassment anymore. Um, but I think that that is the message. Basically, just get over it. Uh, I know that I have two younger brothers who still have not had their colonoscopies despite my continued preaching. And I think a lot of that goes to the whole stigma of, oh, I don't want anything shoved up my butt. I think a lot of that might be a guy thing. And what I keep telling them is, you don't want anything shoved up your butt, but it's going to be a lot worse when you have to go through regular sigmoidoscopies, colonoscopies all the time. You're having all manner of needles and poisons and radiation. And, you know, it, it's it's just not that big a deal. And um, the subject so desperately needs to become less taboo. Um you know, there's there's a time and a place and a context in which to discuss these issues. Obviously, you don't want to do it at the dinner table, <laughs> but that's it. We, we, we just need to get the awareness out there and especially amongst the medical community that this is no longer just an old person's disease. Um, you know, statistically, I think there's been an increase of about 2% a year in the number of cases of young onset colorectal cancer. And you've seen the reports that's expected to increase exponentially over the next decade or so. So it's, it's a real crisis and people need to be aware. Doctors need to be aware. There, it, just, it just needs to be mainstream out there. People need to get over it. We've 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 progressed so far that people are driving around in their cars with bumper stickers that say save the Tatas. So if we can do that, perhaps there's hope. Absolutely. Hey, I have one of those bumper stickers that say I'm speeding because I have to poop. So (laughs) (laughs) okay, so we're making progress already. Uh, as we wrap up, Kim, this is a question I try to ask everybody that I have the pleasure of speaking to on the podcast. And it goes like this. Someone may be listening to the podcast who they themselves or someone they care deeply about has recently been diagnosed with colorectal cancer. What message do you want that person to hear from you? that it is absolutely treatable, in many cases curable, not to give up. Um, I, I know how big and scary it is. And I think, um, you know, the, the general misconception, the general perception, I think, amongst the public at large is that you hear the C word and you're going to die. I know I thought that. How long do I have? You know, how is this going to be a horrible death? Um, but there are so many, you know, new treatment options that have come along. Uh, even since my diagnosis, we have new clinical trials. We have all these wonderful targeted therapies and chemotherapies. Um, you and I both know stage four survivors. Vanessa Gigliotti is, is a wonderful example. She was diagnosed, I think, at 27, and she's now a 12 or 13 year stage four survivor. There are such wonderful stories of hope out there. And, um, you know, just not to give up, keep fighting. And there's a lot of good people, um, out there, you know, supporting you. Uh, there's wonderful resources, colon cancer Alliance. We have all the organizations, a lot of the young people organizations, um, the colon club, there's fight CRC, um, Michael's mission, just a, a wealth of information and resources and folks out there who care and are there to support. So not to give up, just fight this thing with all you have. I think in your words, fight like hell. So <laughs> my favorite quote, thank you, Don Iker for that one. I loved it. I loved it. So, I loved it so much. I have it tattooed on my arm. 
Dawn is wonderful. I saw the tattoo picture. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kim, thank you so much for taking, not just taking the time, but for sharing your personal joint, for sharing your personal journey with us. I wish you continued uh, success, continued good health. And again, thank you so much. Be well. Thank you for having me, Lee. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from this episode can be found on our website at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, on iTunes, or on the Stitcher app for listeners using an Android device. If you or a loved one has a question about colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at www.ccalliance.org. Again, that's www. .ccalliance.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at the colon cancer podcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.